Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 tonight. Hebrews chapter 3. Oh, what does that do? Y'all ever had a piece of technology for a really long time and then all of a sudden accidentally do something and figure out it's got a whole different option? For Anyways, I just blew my own mind. All right, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. So last week we talked... Do what? Uh, No. Inside the app. Anyways, I'll show you later. Um, All right, Hebrews chapter 3. Last week we talked about Moses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then today we have a pretty large section. It's chapter 3, verse 7 uh, through chapter 4, verse 13. So if you have an ESV or a, a crossway ESV specifically, you'll notice that what we're doing is we're taking this book by paragraph um, and mine has the paragraph headers. Do y'all, y- y'all have seen Bibles? If you don't have it, you've seen Bibles that have the paragraph headers, right? Um, those are good. Sometimes they get a little off, but uh, the ESVs in, in Hebrews is really good. It, it, it combines the paragraphs into what he's talking about theme-wise instead of chapter-wise. And so that's really what we're doing. is We're going through theme-wise and not chapter-wise. Um, but tonight we're going to talk more about Moses, but um, in a different way. So chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. Let's just read that very quickly just so we can get our mind in the, the context. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 1, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoke, to be spoken after. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed... We hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. All right, so what's the comparison? What does he use to compare Moses to Jesus in chapter 3, 1 through 6? He says Moses was a something in God's house. What does he say? A servant. But Jesus was what? The son over God's house, right? Moses is a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son over God's house. So that's the difference that he's making. He's not saying that, well, what are the similarities between Moses and Jesus? Y'all give me some of them. What are some similarities between Moses and Jesus? Not like, don't specifically go into like type anti-type where Moses struck the rock and Jesus was the rock. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But just general likenesses between Moses and Jesus. Both went down into Egypt, right? Or 
at least one was in Egypt when he was born. Jesus went down into Egypt, right? But they both had a time where they were hidden for their lives, right? Both of them are prophets. What is a prophet? Right, is it the same thing? I was sitting in court today and someone said, uh, God prophesied over him a couple years ago. And he decided that at that moment he needed to become a preacher. And he said, how did, how did you get your calling? And I said, Josh walked in and said, hey, you're preaching. So that, that is, a prophet is something in the Bible times, not, not anymore. I mean, you could make a comparison between a preacher and a prophet in some ways, but, but a prophet is specifically speaking how. He's not learning and then telling. What is a prophet doing? He's speaking directly on behalf of God, right? So God is telling him, either by a vision, uh, what, what he talks about in Hebrews chapter 2, either by a vision, by an audible voice, by some sort of um, natural phenomenon or natural miracle, right? Something like that. And then that prophet speaks on behalf of God. So Moses and Jesus are both prophets, right? The difference is, in chapter 3... He starts to give this idea that Jesus is better than Moses. But that's not in quality. Moses was a prophet in what way? What did he do? What did he speak on behalf of God? The law, right? The, the, the Pentateuch, the, t- the five books of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? So he gave a new law, Right? Jesus is a prophet, and what did Jesus do? He gave a new law, right? Now, the difference between those laws is not quality. The New Testament is not better than the Old Testament because, of, because it's, it's just somehow innately better. It, it's better because it does a different job than what the Old Testament was meant to do. Now, if, if you have a job that you need done, you have two jobs that you need done. Similar, but somewhat different. And you have one tool that does that job extremely well. But if you tried to do the other job with it, it just wouldn't work. Right? But if you have that specific, jo- specific tool for the second job, then those things are not... One, jo- one tool is not better than the other. They're both perfectly good for what they're meant to do, right? So he's not talking quality. The New Testament is not better in quality than the Old Testament. It's better in, in, in purpose, in character, right? Because what was the Old Testament meant to do? Point out faults, keep us alive, and push our sins back, right? What did the Old Testament do? Pointed out faults, kept us alive, and pushed sins back did exactly what it was meant to do, right? New Testament. If you tried to take the Old Testament and do what the New Testament is meant to do, it can't, right? That's why the book, the, the book of Hebrews says that God was not pleased with the sacrifice of bulls and goats because it didn't do the job that we needed at that moment. So he's not denigrating Moses like we talked about last week. He's not denigrating Moses. All he's saying is these two are different in character and in purpose. They were both great, right? Is it dangerous for members of the church today to somehow lessen the Old Testament in our minds? 
because we don't follow it for law, right? We don't go to the Old Testament to, to learn how to worship. We do go to the Old Testament to learn why to worship, right? Those are different things, right? How and why. So if we lessen the Old Testament and, and over time start to tell ourselves that the Old Testament is not important or that it's not as good, can you follow the New Testament completely understanding what you're meant to understand without the Old Testament? No. Can you go to heaven without the Old Testament? Say, say you're, you know, you always get these hypotheticals. You're walking on a desert island and you find a New Testament. My question is, why, what happened to the Old Testament? And maybe it's one of those that's only bound. Well, in that case, why is it on the desert island? Anyways, hypothetical. You find a New Testament on a desert island. Can you follow that New Testament and become a Christian? Yes. But, when you get to the book of Revelation, you're going to be confused, right? When you get to Hebrews, you're going to be confused. When you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to be confused because you're seeing a religion that just a few months later, they're not following that religion anymore. And what happened? And why was that? And what was the purpose of this, right? So you can go to heaven without the, New Te- without the Old Testament, but you can't follow and understand the New Testament without the Old. And that's what he's trying to point out. He's not saying we should leave the Old Testament alone and never touch it. He's saying we should use it for what it was meant to be used for. Now, for a Christian, what is the New Testament meant for? What's the purpose of the New Testament, or Old Testament, sorry. What's the purpose of the Old Testament for a Christian? Right, Romans 15, 4, right, written for our learning. What kind of learning? Right, so the nature of obedience and, and punishment and that sort of thing. The nature of God, why we worship, those sorts of things. Right, so... That's the basis for the rest of the chapter. So we needed to go over that just to get an idea of what we're talking about. Also, keep in mind that this entire section, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13, is all expounding on verse 6 of chapter 3. Okay? Now, you'll remember, I know we joked around last week at Fishers of Men with, uh, apparently he just doesn't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But anyways... um, We're looking at the book of Hebrews as if it is a sermon preached by Paul, written down by Luke, right? Now, those of you who have preached before, have you ever been in or taught a class, been in a lesson and chased a rabbit trail? I never do that, right? I never just change what I'm talking about. No, I don't. What are you talking about? Yeah, okay, I do. All right. If this is a sermon, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13, is Paul thinking through something as he's preaching. And I want you to read this section in light of that, okay? Because sometimes, I'm going to give you all a little hint, sometimes that happens, where you're teaching or you're preaching something, and as you're preaching it, things start to click. You, you may have been struggling with this passage, may try to figure out what's going on. And then when you're speaking about it and you're talking about it, it starts to click and then you start laying on. And that's where the rabbit trails come from, is when uh, the old preachers call it 
preaching from the overflow. Where you've studied it so much, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you're talking about your three points, a poem, and a deathbed confessional, because that's how you have to make a sermon, apparently. And all of a sudden, that verse clicks, and you go, hold on, wait a second, let's go here, and let's go, and then you go on a rabbit trail. That's what this is, okay? So, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now notice, he, he keeps talking about the Old Testament, but he says different things. It's written here. One person said all this. The only time he ascribes an author is when he says, God said, Jesus said, or the Holy Spirit said. No matter if it's David, if it's Moses, if it's Jeremiah or Isaiah or any other Old Testament prophet, he always says that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, or God are the ones that ultimately said it. Okay? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the re- as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our, our, original, confession, our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear my voice, if you hear his voice, sorry, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not, they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? See that, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, so that's where we'll stop for right now. All right, so he's talked a lot about theology so far. He's made reference to angels and Moses and the Old Testament and New Testament and all the and the, the new law and the old law and all these different things. And this is a moral teaching. Is the Bible only moral teachings? What is a moral teaching first off? What are some moral teachings that the Bible gives us? Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Um, fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, right? What else? What are some other moral teachings? Do unto others, the golden rule. Is the Bible only moral teachings? No. The majority of the books in the New Testament are, though, aren't they? More, just straight moral teachings, for the most part. There's theology in there, right? But like 1 Corinthians is basically moral teaching until you get to chapter 14 and 15 when he starts talking about the resurrection, right? So this is in the middle of a very deep theological book, this moral teaching that essentially, what's the, what's the, the gist of what he just said? Don't be like them. Right. Don't be like them. 
Now, let's look at where he got this, because he's quoting again, okay? So, back in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Today if you hear his voice, that starts the quotation from Psalm 95. So let's flip all the way back to Psalm 95. And let's read what Paul is quoting here, okay? Psalm 95, verse 7. It's halfway through verse 7 was where he starts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to, to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, now let's flip back to Hebrews chapter 3. So he starts taking this passage from the Old Testament. He's already, he's already said, basically, that Moses was faithful in everything that he did. Right? Now, is that completely 100% true that he always did what was right? But that's not what... That's not what he said, right? He didn't say he always did what was right. What did he say? He was faithful. What's the difference between doing everything that's commanded and being faithful? Right? Can you be faithful without being perfect? Yeah, of course. Old Testament and New Testament, right? If you couldn't, if you couldn't be faithful under the Old Testament and, and not be perfect, what's the point in the, the... What's it called when you kill a turtle dove? Sacrifice. Right. What's the point in sacrifice if you can't be faithful without being perfect? Right? Go ahead. Right, exactly, exactly. So, Paul quotes this, and he, he essentially says, you have a choice of what you're going to do, right? It's, it's your decision, and, and you have an example from the Old Testament, and I don't want you to follow that example. Now, in chapter 3, verse 12, he starts this second warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be, may be hardened by the deceitfulness 
of sin. So, let's look at how Paul, in his sermon, used the Old Testament. He quotes from where? Psalm 95, which is in which testament? Old Testament. Which testament is the book of Hebrews written in? The New Testament. So he quotes from an Old Testament passage. And then says, you need to follow that Old Testament passage. Take heed. Chapter chapter 3, verse 7, the, the quotation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. They put him to the test and they saw his works for 40 years. He's provoked with them. He swore in his wrath that they will not enter his rest. Now, Deuteronomy 12, verse 9 is talking about that rest. When the ten spies come back, that's what this is, that's the okay, Masa and Meribah. When the ten spies come back, well, it's also specifically talking about how they murmured in, uh, in the wilderness and Moses went and struck the rock, right? And they said, God, how many times did the Israelites tell or say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? Did you just bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Did you bring us out here because God wanted us to die out here instead of there? Right, so it's talking about that general idea, that general problem in the Israelite people. So, then they spent 40 years after the rebellion with the ten spies and the rebellion at Massa and Meribah. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. And then they received God's rest. Right? What was God's rest? They went into the land of Canaan. Right? Here's the problem. God says, Deuteronomy 12.9, you'll enter my rest after 40 years. They enter into the Canaan land. Then like four or five hundred years later, David writes that they still haven't entered his rest. Well, the, the Israel... Right, the rest of that generation. Right. But... He says the people of Israel are going to enter into the rest. Then David writes in Psalm 95 that they haven't entered the rest yet. So if the rest was the Canaan land, and they did get the Canaan land right, I'm reading my Bible correctly, right? Then why in Psalm 95 does David says they haven't entered the rest? And then, even further, in the New Testament 1,500 years later, why does Paul say that they haven't entered the rest? Right? They've seen these miracles. They've seen everything. I mean, I, God didn't hide it in there. I mean, stayed with them, by night and by day, and did all these things, and miracles, everything, and they still turned right around and didn't believe anymore. God complained with them. This man was called on my promise. Yep. And uh, let's die. Uh, 
right? And was the Canaan land a, a level of rest? They're not wandering in the wilderness anymore. So, so it's a level of rest. It's not the complete rest, is it? New Testament. We, we are similar to the Israelites in that those who are Christians have been entered into the, the, the nation of God, right? The new Israel, the new Canaan land. And so we have an aspect of rest. But that's not the end, right? And that's the point he's making. Look, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go on and read the rest of it, and then it'll make sense. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, so it, it, it was given in Deuteronomy 12, 9, and then repeated in Psalm 95, and it's still standing today, even though they got into Canaan land, so the Canaan land can't be what he was talking about, right? Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear... Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. For we who believe enter that rest. As he said, as I swore my rest, as in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although... His works were finished from the foundation of the world. So there's that rest that we're in right now, right? We who believe enter into God's rest. We're in the Canaan land now, in, 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 in a sense, right? Now, we're in that rest, but, verse uh, number 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in, the, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. So you can see he's thinking through this. He's doing the same thing we're doing. Wait, Deuteronomy 12.9 says that they would enter the rest. And then they went into Canaan. But then David says that they weren't in the rest yet. And that still applies today. And so how does that work? Well, they got into Canaan land, but, but like we who believe get into the church, and we have a sense of rest, but there's also this idea of rest that came all the way back from creation, right? Which was the Sabbath rest, the seventh rest, where God rested from what? What does the text say? He rested from all his work, all his labor. And Paul says, well, when they were in it, in Canaan land, they didn't rest from their labor. They still had to do stuff. They still had to follow God. They still have to till the land and everything else. In the New Testament, we still have to go to our jobs, and we still have to follow Jesus, and we still have to follow commands. And so that means that there has to be a rest that's extra, that's different than what we're talking. There must be something else. You see his thought process in this? You can kind of, you can see his gears turning as you're reading the text. Verse number 7. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, what did Joshua give them? The Canaan land, right? If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So that Canaan land couldn't have been it. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works 
as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. All right, go ahead. Right. It's just like in the New Testament, or in in the book of Revelation, he says, in the church, there will be no dying, and God will wipe all tears away. Is that true? Right. So he says, he says in the church there's no dying. Well, I mean, yeah, your your soul does separate from your body death, right? If you're in the church, you don't have to worry about dying. Right? And God will wipe away every tear. Okay. You want to know why I know that the last chapter uh, last few chapters of Revelation is not talking about heaven? In order to wipe away a tear, what was what must there be to begin with? Sadness. You mean to tell me that heaven is going to be a place where we can still get sad? It does not sound like what Jesus told me about, right? In the church, he wipes away all tears. So, it's the same idea. Paul is saying, so we're basically in Canaan land right now. And he's thinking through this, and he's saying... Okay, that's okay. So this fits here with this, and this fits here with this. So we're in Canaan land now, but that means that there must, be like what, like what God took on the seventh day, right? And then he writes First uh, Thessalonians, says when Jesus comes back, he's going to give what rest to those who do what obey the gospel, right? Right. Right. Yeah, not like outright, but but yeah, for sure. So does that change does that change how we think about passages like um, like uh, well I just I lost my train of thought like does that change how we think about passages when it comes to our obedience today in that it can be really daunting what's what's the passage I've lost my train of thought so now I'm now I'm Backpedaling. What's the passage passage that says God's commands are not grievous? Can you can someone look that up on your Funkin' Wagnalls? That's a dictionary, but on your iPads or phones or I don't know. Start reading in Genesis, and you'll get there eventually, I guess. Um, the the passage that says God's commands are not grievous. Okay, 
Does that change how we think about God's commands? Because we're in Canaan land now, which means we're reaping things that we're sowing, just like they tilled the ground and reaped what they sowed into the ground, and, and we're getting things out. And, and it's not grievous because we're, we know that just like they had to do things to stay alive, I mean, it, when they're in Canaan land, they couldn't just go to Walmart, right? They're, they're substance living. They're, they're tilling the ground to stay alive, right? It was a hard life back then. But they also understood that what they were doing was not somehow God punishing them. God's commands are not somehow God punishing us. When He tells us to do something in the Scriptures, it's not because He just wants to see how high we'll jump, right? Does anybody find that passage for me? 1 John 5, 3. There we go. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, now, now that we did all that, look at verse number 12. Because Hebrews 4.12 is a very popular, famous verse. Okay? Somebody read verses 12 and 13 for me. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Alright, so he gets done with this. He's preaching this sermon of Hebrews, right? And he goes on this rabbit trail and starts thinking. Deuteronomy 12, 9. Psalm 95. I mean, he's not thinking numbers because they didn't have the citation numbers back then, right? But Deuteronomy 12, 9. Psalm 95, 7-11. Whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. We're in Canaan. And he goes through this whole thing. And then, it's almost like verse 12 and 13 is kind of like Paul going, wow. Watch. For the Word of God is living and active. It's living and active. He went through, realistically, almost three dispensations. Definitely the law of Moses and the law of Christ, right? And he says, so everything that, that those 40 years in the wilderness and going into Canaan was not just to get the Israelites into the land of Canaan. It was so that 1,500 years later, we could look at it and say, we're doing the same thing now. And then a command that's given in Deuteronomy 12.9 is further given in Psalm 95. And then in the New Testament, it, it's still powerful today. So the Word of God is living and active. God, God wasn't just putting them in, Israel, in Canaan land just to put them somewhere that was nice. Everything that happened in the Old Testament was specifically meant to give us something to think about in the New Testament. And so Paul says, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the, the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerners of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. If God can do all of that, if he can set up 
Every single thing. That also means that the rebellion from the ten spies, the rebellion at Massa and Meribah, were all forethought by God. If God can do all of that and think through all of these things, then, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give an account. So it's like Paul gets done with this little section of his, of his sermon. He goes, wow, that was, that was cool. All right, now let's move on. Right? But that section, it's not really, it's not saying Jesus in the New Testament is better than anything, is it? He kind of breaks from what he's doing in the book. What he's doing in the book is giving us this thing is better than this thing. This thing, Jesus is better than Moses. We're better than angels. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the Old Testament. The law of of Christ is better than the law of Moses. He's giving all these better things. And this whole section we just talked about, he doesn't say better at all. He just says, well, if you think about it, the New Testament is, is the continuation of the Old Testament. Right? Well, you talking Paul when he's, when he's doing this, when he's speaking? Well, so there are a couple of different ways that the Bible came by inspiration. You have one called mechanical inspiration, which is God says, I want you to write this, then I want you to write this, then I want you to write this, like the book of Revelation, right? Jesus tells John, I want you to write this, and then 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 this, and this, and so, so forth. Then you have inspiration that comes from an inspired man who has a connection with God, who prophesies on behalf of God through miracles, right? Who then takes what he knows about God and writes it down. That is still inspired because where did he get the original information from God? It's, it's as if, now this is a little bit more of a stretch. But any sermon that's preached that's true is inspired by God. Why? Because where did it come from? Right, from his source, right? So, so it's like that. So that's why you get like 1 Corinthians. And this, this makes people question their belief in the Bible all the time. You get passages like in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, well, this isn't, me, this isn't the Lord talking, this is me talking. And they go, well, that verse must not be inspired then. Hang on, it is inspired, but it's not mechanical inspiration. And that's what he's saying. Jesus isn't telling me to write this. What, what's happening when I'm writing this is a man who's inspired by God, who has a direct line with Jesus Christ, who, who prophesies on behalf of Christ, is telling you what I know. Right? Yeah, like 1 Corinthians 7 is one where he says... Um, I, not the Lord, say this. Right, and then you have, after it's written down, I mean, it's coming from an inspired man, speaking on behalf of God, right? Right, and then it's in there, and it's continued for 2,000 years, so that's even further sign that it is true, right? That it is, that it was what God wanted him to say, even though it wasn't mechanical inspiration. So, 
a lot of people think that when we talk about inspiration of the Bible, we talk about God said, Paul's sitting there writing down, and God says, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and Paul's writing this down, right, as God is telling it to him. That's what a lot of people think of inspiration. And that is the way that some inspiration worked. It's evident that parts of 1 Corinthians happened that way because then he breaks and says, this is, this is different, right? But when you have passages like Acts chapter 2, well, not Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is speaking, right? Is Acts 7 inspired? Were the, were the words that Luke wrote inspired? Yeah. Were the words that Stephen wrote inspired? Or Stephen said inspired? Yes. Because he had learned from the Spirit and taught. But he's not, that's not mechanical inspiration. God's not telling him what to say when he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts 26, right? Um, right, right. So inspiration can happen a number of ways. It can happen mechanical where God says, I want you to write this word and then this word and then this word and then this word. And inspiration can also happen where God says, I have taught you, you know, you understand, teach them. Right? And then inspiration happens again when he allows it to continue. Right? So that's, that's what Hebrews is, is, is the teaching. It's, it's, it's Paul speaking because of what he's learned, and then Luke is writing it down. All right, real quick. Right. Right. Yeah, and I'm sad that that makes so many people question their belief in the Bible because Paul said, this is I, not the Lord speaking. But when they just understand what inspiration is, then you don't, that's not a question anymore. That's, that's an inspired man writing and speaking on behalf of God, right? It's just God's not telling him, write this word and then this word and then this word. All right, let's take a quick break real quick and then we'll have our uh, Devo here in just a second. Thank you all.